uh, the middle of the week and plenty on the radio for you today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Um, I was closing, getting up ready to close as I normally do and uh, at five past six I was closing the door and uh, National Lottery representative came in the door to tell me that I had sold the winning ticket. He, he's gone to the stage now, Joe, that he can't move his arms or his legs or even move at all so he's He's worse than someone that's paralysed, Joe. If you don't mind me saying no disrespect to people, no, I paralyzed. know that. I know that. He, he can't move and he can't do anything, but he can feel all the pain. Given the evidence that's come out of number 10 of what's been going on during the lockdown, Boris Johnson and those around him have been able to do what they want, and the rest of us during lockdown have had to do as we're told, and that's mm-hmm. unacceptable. And I think the Prime Minister has, unfortunately, lost the moral authority to lead our country. And we'll start here on Today with Claire Byrne. Owen Madden from Galway has just had his third kidney transplant and he and his wife Michelle were Claire's guests in the morning to talk about the kidney transplant chain. Galway man Owen Madden made a trip to Belfast just after Christmas along with his wife Michelle for his third kidney transplant but this time Michelle was to be a donor. But her kidney went to a stranger and Owen got one in return. To explain how the donation chain scheme works, Owen and Michelle are on the line. You're both very welcome. It's lovely to talk to you, Owen and Michelle. Good morning, sir. Owen, good, morning. You got, good morning, Michelle. Owen, you got home yesterday, is that right? Yeah, yeah just yesterday evening. It was fantastic now to get home and uh, see Shelley again and the children. And how are you doing? Uh, good, yeah. I, I think we're both, you know, a little bit stiff and, and, and sore. Um, but I've lots of energy now and uh, we're recovering slowly. Yeah, I, and I, it's just great to be home. I think anyone who's been in hospital knows that that first day or so when you get home, you can feel very exhausted. Yeah, yeah that's true. And I think maybe Shelley is doing too much now. Um, but, you know, it's great to be back in your own bed and, and, and to see the kids again. I'm sure it um, is. Will, will you talk to us about the background to you needing a new kidney? You first found out quite some time ago, years ago, that there was an issue. That's right. I found out there was an issue with my kidneys uh, when I was a teenager. It was when I was doing my leave insert, actually. Um, I was tired a lot and my mother quite wisely brought me to the GP and immediately he was able to say there's something wrong with your kidneys. And eventually I was diagnosed with something called IgA nephropathy, uh, which is kind of where part of your immune system attacks the kidneys. Um, So... They said to me at the time, I was like 18 at the time, they said, you know, this might come against you later in life when you're in your 50s or something. Um, and in the meantime, I was to get a um, just a checkup every year. So I got a checkup every year. And when I was 21, I was actually on work placement in Germany. And I went for my annual checkup. And the doctor brought me in the next day and said, you have to start dialysis straight away. Um, because my, my kidney, this IgA nephropathy had flared up and my kidneys had suddenly failed. Yeah, I'd say that was some shock to get at that stage. It really was, yeah. Um, so I, I started uh, dialysis that day. Um, I remember having to phone my parents and, and, and tell them and they were just in shock and upset. Um, and I actually did dialysis for few months over in Germany and, and, and then I moved back to uh, college in Limerick and, and did dialysis down in Limerick. And all in all, I was on dialysis for about a year at that time. And it was during that time, actually, that I, I met my, my, my now wife, Shelley. Um, so I was on dialysis for about a year and then I was fortunate enough to receive uh, a donor kidney from a deceased donor in Beaumont Hospital. Um, which was brilliant. Um, And so that would have been in 2002. 
So I had good health then for about seven years, but then the, the kidney slowly failed, that transplant slowly failed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found myself back on dialysis. Actually, as it was failing, uh, we got married, myself and Shelley. Um, and I remember the day of my wedding, I could barely eat. Um, I went to bed early. You know, it, it was it was a really tough time tough for me. Going. And Michelle spoke about meeting Owen during his first time on dialysis. Um, Owen was on, he was very recently on dialysis. Um, I think he went on it around the time of his birthday and we met about a month or two, two months later. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> after, after the wedding then, how soon was the second transplant, Owen? Um, so just after the wedding then, I, I started back on dialysis again and I was very, very lucky. Uh, I was only on dialysis three or four months when I got uh, the call again, it was around Christmas time uh, from Beaumont that a, a deceased donor uh, was suitable for me. And I went up to, to, to Beaumont at that time and, and got the second transplant. And, and that was a that was brilliant. Uh, that was a great transplant. So I was, I was on dialysis very little time that time, you know, it was, it was just three or four months. And then I got that transplant. Um, and then with that transplant, uh, that lasted eight years uh, and it did very well. And we had two children at that time. Um, and then that transplant in 2000, and, yeah, the, the transplant was in 2008, but that transplant then suddenly failed in 2016. Uh, and it was very, very sudden. Uh, I remember uh, one of the doctors in Merlin Park actually getting upset over how suddenly it had, it had failed. Okay. Um, and I have to say that the team in Merlin Park have always been just fantastic to me. Mm-hmm. That's the hospital there in Galway. Um, so, so how does it then, affect you then when, when the transplanted kidney begins to fail? I, I would imagine your life changes significantly. It does. And, and again, that time I had to immediately go on dialysis. And, and when you're on dialysis, you know, it, it, it keeps you alive. But you, you, you don't thrive, you know. Uh, you're very tired all the time. You're, the amount of water or fluid of any kind that you can drink is very limited. Uh, so you're thirsty a lot, you're itchy a lot. Um, your diet itchy, is very you're restricted. itchy, are you? Yeah, um, some people suffer from a, a thing called dialysis itch and I definitely had it. Um, uh, and then you're not eating properly because there's, there's this dialysis diet that's low in phosphate and low in potassium, um, which ironically means you're not allowed to eat much fruit and vegetables. Um, You're also not allowed to eat nuts, chocolate, um, coffee. It's very, very restricted. Mm -hmm. And as someone who loves food, I I found that quite hard. Difficult, Uh, So that's been the the situation now for the last five and a half years. And so Claire asked Owen when it was decided he needed a third transplant. Uh, so, so from day one that I went on dialysis, we tried to see could I get another transplant. Every time you have a transplant, you build up antibodies in your body. Um, and building up these antibodies makes it harder for you to find a match. And so I got to the stage where it was very difficult for me to find a match. Now, uh, various members of my family, all my brothers, my dad, my cousin, had brought themselves forward uh, being donors. Um, but it turned out none of them were, were suitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, they either weren't a good match or were a good match, but, but were physically unable to donate. Um, and, and it was Bowman who handled all of that. And, and uh, that, that was a tough time, I think, for, for the family too, because we really hoped 
the living donation would, would work out Yes, for I'm sure. And then you're you're waiting for results to come back and it's not the news that everyone uh, hopes you're going to get. And Michelle, you decided then that you were going to get checked out as a possible donor yourself. Yes. Um, shortly before Christmas last year, um, so 2020, I, my the youngest was two years old. I felt it was a good time prior to that. It, the children were too young. So I decided that after Christmas I would give Beaumont a call. I didn't say anything to Owen. <laughs> um, and I phoned them after Christmas and they invited me up for initial screening. Um, after that initial screening, <clears throat> they got back to us, I think in April time, to say that I wasn't suitable to donate to Owen. Um, but would we consider um, a paired exchange or a shared exchange scheme? Now, it was something we were already aware of. Um, Owen would be aware of it from his work with the Irish Kidney Association. Um, so we had discussed it ourselves. <clears throat> and I was I was quite willing and quite open to take part in that. Will you just tell us what that is for those of us who haven't heard of it before, Michelle? Sure. Um, so what it is, is it's a it's a UK run programme um, and the UK invite um, the Republic of Ireland to take part in that programme because with the size of the UK, they have a good pool. Ireland is too small to have a, a pool of its own. So we take part in the UK scheme. And what they do basically is they put their pairs, you will generally go forward as a pair, um, someone who needs a kidney and someone who is willing to donate a kidney, they put it into a database and they do that about four times a year um, and they run a, a, a matching programme and they try and get the most number of matches they can in any one run. So there's constantly people coming onto the scheme and then there's constantly people coming off the scheme after a successful um, matching and transplantation process. Um, so it can, your, our centre was Belfast, um, there's also a centre in Coventry and there are other centres around the UK. Okay. Um, so your, your centre will coordinate your um, surgeries and how everything works for you. Um, and on, if you, you have, you could have multiple pairs in the, in the, the, the chain, we'll call it. So we believe in our chain initially there were three pairs involved, meaning there were kidneys flying in all directions <laughs> <laughs> on the day of the surgeries. Um, and yeah, um, there can also be altruistic donors, yeah. um, but that's, that's rarer. And Owen explained how things worked out. So uh, initially they phoned us in November because they had, uh, I've been told by several doctors in early November that even with the shared exchange scheme, I'm so difficult to match that it'd be like a one in 100,000 of me finding a match, you know. Um, and, and that really mentally I should prepare to be on dialysis for the rest of my life. That's what I was told in early okay. November. And then in mid-November, um, I suddenly got a call out of the blue from Belfast City Hospital to say they had found a match on, on the shared exchange scheme. Um, so... Uh, as you were saying there, we went up in on the 16th of December um, for the operation, but but it, it fell apart okay. when the people got sick. In fact, Shelley was being kind of wheeled down to surgery 
when when the whole thing was cancelled. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure then, that was was devastating. Oh, and your line isn't isn't great, so you'll forgive me now if I'm going to just jump along sure. a little bit and take us into January. Only two weeks ago, when you got the call that a match had been found. So it was as, as the same match as, as as before, but but now there was only uh, two pairs in the chain. Okay, so it was easier to to get work through the chain at that point. Exactly. And so they said to come back on the 4th of January, but they were, they were worried with COVID that the whole thing was still quite tentative. So we went back up to um, Belfast on the, on the 3rd of January. We had car trouble on the way up. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things went wrong that day. Uh, we had car trouble on the way up, but the PSNI came to the rescue and drove us to Belfast City Hospital. Um, and the next day, everything was ready to go and Shelley went down to have her healthy kidney removed uh, at about 8.30 that morning. Nice, gosh. And Michelle, how have you been since? Yeah, I've, I've been good. Um, you know, any, any side effects um, I have or any pain or anything, it is the result of major surgery, um, not necessarily the kidney being removed. So I feel as well as I did before, just that I'm recovering from surgery now. Yes, and anyone so, would, would, would feel a little under the weather after that. Yeah. Ona Michelle Madden from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, we had more details about that extra public holiday and once-off payment to frontline healthcare workers. An extra public holiday for all and for healthcare workers, a €1,000 once-off tax-free pandemic bonus. The government today signed off on its long-promised recognition for sacrifices made in the battle against COVID-19 during the past two years. This year, Friday the 18th of March, the day after St. Patrick's Day, is being declared a public holiday. From next year, there'll be a new public holiday on the first Monday in February. Here's Thonor Stilly of Radcliffe making the announcement in the last few minutes. Uh, it's been a long two years since this pandemic began. 9,000 lives have been lost to COVID on the island of Ireland and millions of lives have been interrupted. Today the government decided on three actions uh, to remember those who lost their lives to COVID to recognise all of those workers, volunteers and members of the general public who have helped us in this fight against the pandemic, and especially frontline healthcare workers, those who wore masks and gowns and were exposed to COVID patients or COVID samples in the course of their work every day, even before there were any vaccines. In relation to the public holidays, uh, which fall under my remit as Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment, the government has agreed to have a once-off public holiday on Friday the 18th of March 2022 in recognition of the efforts of the general public, workers and volunteers during the COVID-19 pandemic and also in remembrance of people who lost their lives due to COVID-19. The Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, said the bonus payment was to recognise the risks that were taken by healthcare workers during the pandemic. In our nation's greatest time of need in a long time, our healthcare families stepped up. They did so before a vaccination programme was in place. And it's for this fearless commitment, despite these risks, that this recognition payment is being made. 
Stephen Donnelly speaking after this morning's Cabinet meeting earlier, the Taoiseach said the government will meet again on Friday to decide on easing COVID restrictions and will give clarity to the public at that point. On his way into the Cabinet meeting, Mr Martin said the government had to be mindful of disease levels and the prospect of future variants. But he said we can be optimistic about the medium term. The Omicron situation does... um uh, the, the manner in which that has happened, the, the, the widespread uh, nature of its transmission and so on, and the fact that we've man- managed, managed so far to weather that storm, I think, is, 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 gives us grounds for optimism in that medium term right out to March. Uh, and throughout the year, we have to be mindful, of course, of other variants that may come. And Brian then spoke to political correspondent Paul Cunningham. Well, what we know is that um, frontline uh, workers in hospital settings are going to qualify. We also know from a government statement that ambulance workers will be included. I had confirmed earlier on today that people working in nursing homes and providing hospice care would also be provided. And in the news conference, which is ongoing, um, Defence Force members who are also working on the front line, they too will be included. Um, I haven't yet got confirmation yet, Brian, on the question of student nurses. They were students rather than full nurses but they most certainly were on the front line so that one I, I, I'm not quite sure just yet. Yeah well we've had just had uh, put into our hands the, the government uh, statement and I think we can help you with this because in relation to who qualifies who will be eligible it identifies supernumerary students who were required to perform training in clinical sites and also and I don't know if you mentioned this staff in private sector nursing homes and hospices affected by COVID-19. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, uh, we did hear from uh, Michael McGrath and he put an estimate of the cost of this at around €100 million for the frontline healthcare workers. He said the bill would go up when you took in and included some of those outside of of hospitals. So the actual total bill we haven't got just yet. Yeah, and there's also, again, we're told from this release, a pro rata arrangement that will apply for eligible part-time staff. But they're also emphasising that this is going to be, and again I quote, ring-fenced to staff ordinarily on site in COVID-19 exposed healthcare environments. Yeah, and I, th- I think this is going to be a key thing. If you cast your mind back to September, the Thonis Ali of Radkar was saying that his strong view that the bonus payments or extra leave should not be limited to frontline workers. And he said, I have, this was t- to the Doyle, I've seen the enormous work done by civil servants in the Department of Social Protection, making sure that people got their pandemic unemployment payment. And he went on to say, too often we make this distinction between frontline workers and non-frontline workers, which does not fully appreciate that there is nothing you can do as a frontline worker if you don't have all of those people mm behind you. So that remains an issue. You have people like Paul Murphy of People Before Profit saying all workers should have been paid. We've got the mandate trade union looking out for people maybe in, in the retail sector or also they say working on the front line. So this one has still got a, a bit to go yet on just exactly how the uh, the general view has arrived at whether this is appropriate or not. Right. So let's turn then to this decision in relation to a public holiday, a new public holiday um, this year on um, March 18th. Exactly. So the way that um, the Thonish Delia Vrakar framed it was that and what the Cabinet wanted to do was to uh, call this bank holiday to recognise the efforts of the general public um, workers, volunteers, for all of those who are effectively coming forward and, and and played their role. And then what we're going to have happen after that is in next year, instead of it happening the day after St. Patrick's or um, yes, yeah, St. Patrick's Day, mm-hmm. it will move to St. Bridget's Day in February. So a the reason for this is one, to give a bit of planning, but also that there's going to be a national commemorative event to remember those who, who died during the pandemic. Paul Cunningham on the news at one with Brian Dobson. Then later, Joe Duffy and callers were also 
talking about these announcements on the live line. Public health care workers who served on site in a clinical COVID-19 exposed environment during the course of the pandemic are to receive a once-off €1,000 tax-free payment under plan passed by the Cabinet this morning. Healthcare workers in private nursing homes and hospices will also be included. Uh, soldiers, members of our Defence Forces who are working on the front line, they are also included. Paul Davidson, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. What, yes or no, what do you think of this? I'm all in favour of it, Joe, especially as I was in hospitals last year. I was in the matter for two weeks. I was in Beaumont for 15 days and I was in Vincent's for three days. Now, so I didn't have COVID, okay. but I did have other issues. But you're all in favour. John Phelan in Kilkenny. John, you're a father of two nurses. What do you think? Um, the, 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 my main point, Joe, is like um, people are saying, you know, can the government to give the money? But essentially it's taxpayers' money. The, the, the money is actually, t- you know, the government doesn't have a pot of money it can just give. It gives what the taxpayer pays. Well, it's over 100 million um, what the bonus will cost. How much? Over a hundred million, just a figure yeah, already. Which are, yeah, which I know it is only a small in the thirty billion or something yeah. that this this has cost the country. Like it's, but um, like what about all the other people? The the people that do the dirty work, we say. I mean, there's an awful lot of people there that kept the country going. Like who? Who in are you talking in, about? Yeah, in in shops, drivers, um, refuse the whole lot. Like all those. Yeah, people. but but including refuse now, unfortunately, they they all work for private companies. Yeah, but sure, like that's all very well. But I mean, the to the the private, the people working the private companies who pay tax will essentially pay the bonus for the public service. I mean, at the bottom line is no one in the public service actually lost any money during the ta- during the pandemic because they stay, they all stayed working. Do you? T- John, do your two daughters know you're opposing them getting the? I'm not, no, I'm not opposing them, Joe. I'm saying the best you look to them. But anyway, the two of them are still in bed. They're, they're in the off night, so... Oh, God. Um, yeah. I know, they, no, I have no problem. My daughter has no problem with me. This, uh, like, uh, my eldest daughter always said, Daddy, we we love you. We look after you. When you get older, they pick, she said, I pick a nice nurse for you. Okay, but they... Well, you make your point. They, they like they like to work on the job and they're not motivated by money. They worked through no, the pandemic they do like it, yeah. and they didn't mind. And yeah, they said, look but, around at all the businesses that are shut down, that will never reopen. Absolutely. And I mean, what about all those people? And what, You know, there's, like, it, it, mainly the point is, Joe, about people saying the government give give the money. The government, you know, it's easy, the government doesn't give the money. Somebody has to pay it in. And that's essentially the taxpayer. Okay. And I mean, Keith, Keith Higgins, Keith, could have stayed there, John, in Kilkenny. Keith, um, Paul is in favour of it. John is against it, even though he has two nurses in the house with him at the moment, uh, two daughters. Keith, uh, you for and against this pandemic bonus? Uh, I'm not for it, uh, very simply because uh, we're already under enough stress as a country. The ones that actually need it are the companies, the private companies, the ones that were shut but down. They are, yeah, but they, they, they are getting government support. There's numerous schemes, numerous schemes. The schemes, the schemes wouldn't tickle a corner of what they need. Um, well, we'd won, we'd won the famous video of the public and down in Cork doing river dance, saying thanks to Michal Martin for giving him I don't know what the, it meant the government obviously, but giving him something like ten grand a week and he was flying in the pub, flying. Right, so uh, ten grand. You you stand back and look at 
what was he turning over to get the 10 grand? Like, it must have been ferocious. Because uh, my wife is a beautician. Okay. And she is absolutely struggling. Yeah. I'm driving trucks. I worked the whole way through, never stopped. Yeah. And... Um, what do you think? Was, what do you think truck drivers should get it? I don't think anyone should get it. Don't think anyone should get it. Okay. Well, like, well, like for, for example, Dunn Dun stores. It didn't get much coverage because it happened at Christmas. Ten thousand workers in Dunn stores got a ten percent increase because of the pandemic, and it's a permanent increase. And it 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 not only is it an increase, uh, it's not a once-off payment, but it, it's also included as their salary for consideration for pension and sick pay, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So don't, but don't pay that, not the government. So should should companies that did well during the pandemic, like do other have any has any other shop, for example, Centra or Super Value or Tesco or whatever, have any of them given their workers a ten percent uh, uh, wage wage increase? I doubt it. I doubt it. No, but at the, right now, the whole country needs an inflation. It's been stagnant since um, the, the drop in the economy. And the cost of living is soaring. And Gail called with her views of the payment. I think maybe the frontline medical staff should get slightly more of a bonus. But also, because they're the people that were literally on the cold face with the PPE dealing with people. Yeah, well, with they, well, they, well, in fairness, they are saying, Gail. I don't know how I don't know how you can word this without some loophole in the world we live yeah. in. Public healthcare workers who served on site in a clinical COVID nineteen exposed environment during the course of the pandemic are to receive a once off one thousand euro tax free payment under plan. Healthcare workers in private nursing homes and hospices will also be included. Now, what's the problem? There's no problem. They should all get it. They're very welcome yeah, to but it. Yeah, but, 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 but you, you do say, why not an allowance for retail workers, deli workers? I say, yeah, the, the um, revenue know exactly who was working through those days when yeah. so many things were closed down. The retail workers in any of yeah, your corner who, shops. Yeah, but who should deli- pay Who should pay the 1,000 euro to retail workers, deli workers, well, lorry drivers? Well, I didn't drivers? say it, was a, it should be 1,000. Well, it whatever, 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 whatever. Yeah, whatever. Um, I think the government spent a lot of money Why? foolishly was, in this country. Yeah, but it was Tesco. And it was Tesco. They should and, give some money to these people who yeah, we were was, so happy to see when we went into the shop to buy whatever we were shopping. Yeah, but surely, it should, surely it should be their employer that's paying it, like Dunn Stores did. And not that they give them well, once-off payment, they gave them a 10%. It should have been 100%, I'm sure, but they gave them 10% permanently and reckonable for all of This is a once-off €1,000 payment that's not reckonable for pension or sick pay or anything else involved. But Dunn Stores ponied up the money and they're doing very well. Uh, where's, where's, you, you well, want the you taxpayer, other, you want the other, taxpayer to pony yeah, up do. the money for Tesco? That don't yes. e- don't even no, no, tell no, us what the profits the are. In these, the likes of any of these big retail people should have enough respect for their staff, like Dunn stores, to give them well, you know, big a bonus retail? or whatever. Centre are small shops generally, but it's a big, big company, Musgrave, Supervalue. Yeah. Surely they should pay it. They probably should, but maybe yeah. the government should take a lead as they the, have. you know, of legal... They have. They have. Yes, but not for they the have. retail workers. They've just, the announced, they've just announced this morning a 1,000 tax free 
um, uh, bonus, pandemic bonus for people face to face healthcare. Now, if that's not a lead, I don't know what is. So why aren't well, why why aren't well, I am well. mentioning now. Why aren't Tesco and Nolans and all the other Tesco Nolan Nolans trans, transport? Okay, well, call on they them should, to do it then, and tell them to pay all it. All the lorry driver, the retailers, and the uh, transport operators. Maybe make a name for yourself and give your workers. Lots of them have made loads of money in the pandemic. Maybe make a name for yourself and come out. Be the first person to come out and say, yes, such and such transport company, we're going to give them a thousand euros. That's Gail on the live line with Joe Duffy. And in the morning, Claire Byrne was talking to the seller of the winning ticket of Saturday's lottery jackpot of 19 million euro. Well, it's official. Laura's XL store in Castlebar in County Mayo is the luckiest shop in the land because that's where the latest lottery millionaire ticket was bought on Saturday after seven months the 19 million euro jackpot was finally won and we still don't know who the lucky winner is we do know who sold that ticket and I'm joined on the line now by the owner of Laura's XL shop Laura Scriney Laura good morning Good morning Claire how are you? I'm very well I'm I'm sure you're in great form today though when did you find Um, out? uh, Six o'clock yesterday evening so the shock it's still there. Tell us how you found out about it. Um, I was closing, getting up, ready to close as I normally do. And uh, at five past six, I was closing the door and the uh, National Lottery representative came in the door to tell me that I had sold the winning ticket. Right, so there was someone hanging around outside as you were closing someone up. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, someone was loitering around the door. Had you any so, idea before you were told officially that it might have been no. you? Not a clue. There was rumours all week from different premises in the town that it was could have been this shop and it could have been that shop. So I never expected it to be me. Never. And, and what's, what has it been like since then? Could you tell anybody after you were told? No. So my lips were sealed until 7 o'clock this morning. So it was very hard not to tell those nearest and dearest to me. Um, and those who've helped me from the start, I couldn't even tell them. So it was a hard one. But um, 7 o'clock this morning onwards, now everything has taken off into full swing. Right. Great celebrations, I'm sure. And <laughs> yeah, who was massive. The, who was the first person you told at 7 o'clock this morning? Um, I just sent out a general message to say to everyone, I want you to hear it from me first. So uh, I sent it to all those who needed to And Laura, you, s- you said there, you know, you couldn't even tell the people who helped you from the start. And I'd say you're referring to the fact there that you're relatively new to the business. Yeah, I only opened it in September 2019. So um, relatively new, but only in the door. And tell me about how busy you were in the lead up then to the draw on Saturday. Oh, the lead up to the draw was just phenomenal. It was, you know, quick pick after quick pick after quick pick. It was a lot of all day Friday and Saturday and nothing really else. So does that mean then that you could have no idea who bought the ticket? Absolutely not a clue. I wouldn't even like to start thinking about who it was because there was that many lotto tickets sold. So. Yeah, well, I'd say though yeah. you're trying to run through it all in your mind, are you? Who came in? Still trying to process everything, yeah. Oh yeah, I'd say you're going through. I yeah, mean, did, would you know most of your customers? Would they be local? We'd have a huge loyal customer base, but we also get a lot from other towns coming in as well. So there's just a massive customer base you would never be able to pinpoint it. It could be anybody, in other words. Yeah, it could, yeah. And listen to me, I know on Thursday, just before you spoke about the busy Friday and Saturday that you had, you had a sad occasion on Thursday and the shop was yeah, closed. Um, unfortunately, my grandmother passed away. So it's a week of ups and downs. 
I'm sure it is uh, highs and lows but I know your family have been saying to you haven't they that she's looking down on you she, she's done something anyway yeah well it, it just must be a lovely moment you know for somebody who's new in business having gone through the pandemic gone through the loss of your grandmother to get to this point today I mean I imagine the excitement levels are extremely high extremely extremely high yeah now, it's, uh, it's something you always dream of when you you know when you're selling the lotto you always kind of mess saying it you know this is the winning ticket and you never actually think it's going to come true. But Castlebar is being billed as the luckiest town in Europe because very it's, very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> it's the fourth <laughs> time it's happened, isn't it? Yeah, imagine even when Mayo was announced, nobody could have believed that it was Castlebar again. So it's great, great yeah. for the town. The town is you know, such a buzz around it the last few days and it's lovely. Yeah, and I'm sure people are delighted for you because you're young and you're, and you're new to the trade yeah. as well and it's a, it's a great boost. What have the customers been saying to you this morning, Laura? There's just so many well wishes and congratulations and, you know, that they knew it was coming to me at some stage <laughs> or they were hoping it would come to me at some stage. So it's just, it's fantastic. And people driving past, beeping the horns. Beeping they... and, yeah, and the, the shouting and everything. It's great. Oh, great it's buzz. great. I mean, I'm sure it'll mean a boost to your business as well, will it? Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> and and the other thing yeah. that happens then as well is you're in line for a national lottery payout yourself, or the shop is, rather. Seemingly, have, yeah. Have they told you about that? How does that work? Um, I've been told there is a... a prize given to the shop as well but I, to be honest I haven't had time to think about it everything is happening so fast Well that, it's great news I mean have you any plans for that what will you do with it? I have no idea <laughs> look after the staff and after that we'll see Well listen if the pubs and the restaurants are open past 8 o'clock from Friday you might find a way to spend it there right? All going well yeah <laughs> <laughs> Laura Screeny from Castle Bar from Today with Claire Byrne Now from the Ryan Tuberty Show, Neve Condon is a dysphagia chef and founder of Dining with Dignity, making food less of an issue for people with swallow problems. But first, Neve told Ryan about her first job working with food. Can we go to the butcher shop and you were 12 years old and you were there doing what? Oh God, I was there doing everything you could possibly think of. Yeah. So between delivering messages for customers and preparing meats... So I could be in charge of mincing some pork to make sausages. Mm -hmm. So I learned how to make sausages when I was 12 and 13. Um, And then watching my uncle butcher um, the, I suppose, the lamb carcasses and every other kind of meat and listening to him talking to the customers about how to cook it. So very, is this Jim Nevins, Daly and Ennis? That's right. And people will, of course, Ennis will know what and who we're talking about, but you were very young to be looking at, you know, even the words you're using, like the butchery and the carcasses. And a lot of young people might look at that and go, oh, that's not for me. But you saw it uh, as an education, really. It was an education. And he always said to me, I'm teaching you life skills. And I told him at the start, I don't want to be a chef. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, if you can cook, you'll always have a job. Now, he was right, but I wouldn't tell him that. No, no, you didn't want to give him the satisfaction. But you did it anyway, and you were going to school. And um, I, I, we'll bounce on to the Clare Inn Hotel then. It's now called the Inn at Dromoland. You were 17 years old. It was 1997. What class of glamour were you dealing with there? It was a different world completely. First of all, I had to actually annoy the general manager there for a job. Okay. For about six months before he gave in. And the glamour that I was given when I arrived in was a bucket and a scrubbing brush. And I had to clean 
underneath where the ovens were mm. and basically scrub the kitchen. That's pretty pretty tough work, isn't it? But, but, uh, it was, but I, again, as, as I did, I was kind of pushing myself forward. So I kind of told the chefs, if you're under pressure, give, ask me and I'll give you a hand. So yeah. I, the chef, the head chef there at the time, Colm Chalk, saw me, I suppose, kind of pushing myself forward and trying to learn more and get my hands stuck in the food side of it. So he brought me in and trained me as a chef. And at last you were now in the in this role in life that you had all roads were leading to. Um, and you went to UCC, you did uh, food process engineering. I did. I what does that mean? It, it's a combination of food science and an engineering degree okay. together. So when I went in, originally, it, I was greenhorn. It was like a calf at fresh grass, to be honest with you. I went to UCC and I let loose. So we were studying everything from zoology to um, mathematics, to physics, everything you can think of. Yeah. And then we did AutoCAD drawing. So I was intrigued with that because for my leaving cert, I did construction studies. Right. So I would have had an interest in the building side of things as well as food side because my dad was a plumber. Right, you're covering us so many angles here. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so my dad was a plumber and I would have always been out with him on jobs to see what was done and I would have been asked to hang a radiator at one point uh, you could see people's faces when they saw me wire a time clock it was kind of a bit strange for them but for the building side and the AutoCAD drawing always stuck with me so design and features and how things run which as well is part of process engineering because process engineers will design a plant so a production plant. It could be a food production or it could be pharmaceutical. And they will design from the raw materials coming in to the finished product going out and what process it has to go through to get to the end result. And so Ryan asked Neve about going to work in a nursing home. I want to go to the the nursing home you, you ended up as um, head chef in, in 2014. This is Fairfield Nursing Home. And I think, yeah. from what I understand, you went into that going... Yeah, you know, I'll just do, you know, eggs in the morning, you know, a sandwich in the afternoon, you know, dinner in the middle of the day and then a bit of a light supper in the, you know, a bit blasé. Would that be right? Very much so, blasé. Yeah, I was sold a different picture to what it was. So the owner there, Sean Collins, called me and he said, look, Neve, I have a role here and it would suit you down to the ground. You'd have a lifestyle that you've never had before where you work nine to five. Ah, the cooking is easy. You'll you do that in your sleep. Mm. I said, okay, nine to five. That's great. No chef has ever had that type of a job. So off I went. And it was a massive eye opener. So it was all fine when he was telling me the job role until I spoke to the director of nursing. Yeah. And she said, right, okay, we have 50 residents. They have to get three meals a day. But out of those 50, there might be 25 people with a swallowing difficulty. They ha- we also have people with diabetes. We need low-sodium diets, we have renal diets. I nearly cried. Yeah, so 50, 50 uh, residents, three meals per day, and as you say, half of them with, uh, with you know, nearly all of them with, with nearly all individual meals, really. So it's a totally different ballgame for you. Oh, completely. Yeah. Now, yes, there was a menu, and yes, we kind of stuck to that as best we could because it wasn't possible to cook 50 different individual meals. So we modified each we modified, let's just say it was a roast beef dinner on today. So for everybody that could eat roast beef as it is, that was fine. So anybody that needed anything modified, like you needed to have it cut up smaller, then that was done. If you needed it minced, 
that was done. And if you needed a pureed, that was done. Um, when it came to presenting it, that posed a problem for me. Okay, well, and we'll come to that in a moment. But as you say, half the residents with with swallowing difficulties, and there was a, there was a particular uh, syndrome uh, that you came across for the first time in your life. Yes, it's called dysphagia. Yeah, and I couldn't pronounce it, let alone tell you what it was at the start. Yeah, you and me both. And I know it's, it. It is a mouthful. <laughs> Pardon the pun. I know, but under the circumstances, but come <laughs> on, we'll keep going. But what, it, what it means is it's, people have a difficulty from getting the food into their mouth, holding it in their mouth. Yes. They could have a difficulty in chewing it, moving it from the front of their mouth into their stomach. So there's a range of, of difficulties that these people mm. have. Because they could choke. They can choke and they can aspirate, which means something can go into their lungs. All right, okay. And from me... When I started, I said, am I going to get any kind of training on this? And they said, no, sure, you'll figure it out. Because there was no training. It's not their fault at all. It was basically there is no training for chefs in care homes at the time when I started on how to prepare food safely for someone with a swallowing difficulty. So what do you do, Neve, with that piece of or a slice or two of roast beef for somebody with dysphagia? So what I ended up at the start was I, I followed suit from the previous chef that was there before me. So I put everything into a blender yeah. and made a smoothie for the, all the world. So it was like a baby bowl. All right. And it was served in either a blue bowl, a red bowl or a green, whatever color bowl. But it was still a bowl of brown stuff is oh, the God. only word you could call it because yeah. it didn't look like anything. And people were, yeah, they were eating it because, okay... You know, they had nothing else. But I just couldn't sit down and sit there with somebody else and eat that same meal. I just thought it wasn't fair. Yeah. So Neve decided to get a better feel for things by going on a dysphagia diet herself. It was actually a dietitian um, who was working for Nutrition at the time. Her name is Grania Kent. And yeah. we just, just down to getting to know her. And actually, I think I frightened her. I dragged her into the kitchen one day in the nursing home. I said, I need your help. Mm. My worry was that when we blend food, that we reduce the nutrients. And I wanted to see how we could try and improve it. So we decided together that we would do this diet of three days pureed food and thickened liquids. So we did it here in my house where we prepared all the food. And yes, we prepared them individually. Okay. And I gave Grania a set of piping bags filled with food that equally that I had. And the challenge for her was to present the food in a way that was attractive for her to eat. Okay, so you've got a piping bag full of potatoes, a piping bag yes. full of meat pureed, and a piping bag full of parsnips and carrots pureed. Yes. And her job was to make that look um, edible um, in a way that you might think, I might enjoy this as opposed to edible because I have to eat. Yes. And the, the thing, the reason I did that is because a lot of the clinical staff are able to talk about dysphagia and they're brilliant. And I would highly recommend talking to them but to actually get them to do the practical side of it, it's a different story. So yeah. when she started plating and I started plating, there were two different plates of food with the same food. And she wanted my plate and I ate hers. Okay, because? <laughs> because the plate that I presented looked like what it should. Neve Condon from the Ryan Tuberty Show. 
And so it's back to Downing Street and the woes of Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The Prime Minister spoke to Beth Rigby from Sky News. Let's hear some of what he had to say. I think what people need to do is wait and see what the, the report says. But I, I repeat my, my deep apologies to people for mistakes that uh, may have been made on my watch. And, but you see that and, that looks ridiculous. I, I, it sounds ridiculous. I, I, I repeat my apologies for any and all misjudgments that were made, uh, for which I take full responsibility. But I think people do need to, to wait and see the, the conclusion of the, of the report. And I, I, will, I will draw the necessary uh, consequences and conclusions but then come back to the House. That's uh, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking to Beth Rigby from Sky News yesterday. I'm joined on the line now by Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire, Andrew Bridge. And good morning to you. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. I know people who saw the television pictures of that interview will know just how broken the Prime Minister looked yesterday. Would you agree? Um, yes, he's certainly a man under, under pressure, but n- not without reason. Just looking at the headlines today on the newspapers there, Porky Pie plot to ditch the PM, Redwall Tory MPs team up to topple Johnson. How far do you think you are down that road now to Tory MPs voting no confidence in, in Boris Johnson? Well, I put my letter of no confidence some some time ago. Um, I think the 2019 intake have come to a conclusion. Um, I was actually with them last night when they told the journalists that there was going to be a mass um, number of letters going to Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of the Ivy Committee today. I think we must be very close to the threshold of 54 letters. I think we probably will go through it certainly this week. Um, And as a result of that, I think we will have a confidence ballot probably Tuesday or Wednesday next week, whether the Sue Gray report is out by then, I don't know. Um, and I think that the kind of detractors such as Dominic Cummings and others will pile everything else they've got into the media this weekend. So it's going to be fairly messy, but it's bringing things to a head. And um, I think the current situation is, is untenable. And I'm afraid I've said publicly that given the evidence that's come out of number 10 of what's been going on during the lockdown and the parties... Um, it appears that um, Boris Johnson and those around him have been able to do what they want and the rest of us during lockdown have had to do as we're told and that's mm-hmm. unacceptable. And I think the Prime Minister has unfortunately lost the moral authority to lead our country. And the, that's, I don't think that's coming back. The, the Telegraph reporting this morning I saw on, on social media saying they believe that 11 letters went in this morning, 11 new letters. Do you think that is about right? I heard it was going to be at least 20. And I think that publicity will encourage many wavering MPs uh, who haven't been in the House that long to uh, to put their, their letter in. Mm-hmm. So I, I would suspect that before the weekend we will have hit 54 letters. Andrew Bridgen there. Then Claire spoke to Alistair Campbell, former press secretary for the Labour Party. On Sky News this morning you said that Boris Johnson is the worst Prime Minister uh, you've ever had and he had to go. Do you have any sympathy for him? We, we Just before you join us, we played that clip of him speaking to Beth Rigby yesterday and if I was saying to Andrew Bridgen, if people saw it, I mean, the man looks utterly broken at this stage. Well, frankly, no, because he's the Prime Minister and, you know, Prime Ministers have to expect, excuse my clock, Prime Ministers have to expect to be 
in difficult situations and put under pressure, but he's the author of his own misfortune. And he's the author of the Tory party's misfortune as well. And they are the author of his because people like Andrew and other MPs who backed Boris Johnson to the hill, they've always known what it was like. I mean, yesterday when he said to Beth Rigby, nobody warned me about this being a party, about this being in breach of the rules. Well, you can't say that the country wasn't warned that Boris Johnson has a track record of lying, a track record of dissembling and deceiving. And this is the consequence when you put somebody like that in a position of power. And I'd have more sympathy if, for example, he'd ever shown such sympathy for the families of those who've died of COVID, yeah. to whom he lied in the garden. If he'd shown sympathy to Nazarene Zaghari Ratcliffe, he'd shown sympathy to the people of Afghanistan that we've left behind. So, no, I'm afraid I don't. I think that once you're into... I have, I have sympathy for his children. Uh, I have sympathy for people who are touched by his badness in the way that they are. But no, him personally, I'm afraid I, I don't. So, Andrew, what do you say to that? You can't say you weren't told about this man. Well, I'm not sure that Alistair's the man to jump on the moral high ground and, and uh, on, on these sort of matters regarding previous prime ministers. Um, Why think... is that then? Why is that then, Andrew? Um, we, do you think, we, we haven't got time. Well, I think we, we do, actually. No, you have. No, no, no it's OK, Andrew. Plenty of time. Plenty of time. Well, you can do that. But listen, let me just tell you this, Andrew. This is what they do. This is what they do, these people. They want the public to believe that they're all as bad as each other because that way they can carry on having second-rate people get into politics, second-rate people get into Parliament, second-rate people become Prime Minister. Alistair Campbell and Andrew Bridgen from Today with Claire Byrne. And back to the live line and the bonus payment for frontline workers. Bus driver Niall called Joe about his situation. I work for Quinn Bus okay. in, in, in Trim County Mead. Yeah, well, well, and yeah, you do you think he, Mark is saying Dublin Bus, which is the taxpayer essentially, they should they should get the bonus. Um, do you think you should get the pandemic bonus? Well, I know I know well, you agree with health workers getting it, but do you think it should be extended? Well, not to the same extent. They say not to not to the, what what the nurses are getting because they definitely deserve that. You know, they yeah. were out there. What I'm saying is, like you remember me, Joe, when I was driving the bus. That CAE driver, there's no disrespect to him, but he came under CAE rules, which means that his bus was allowed only carry 25 percent what they normally yeah. did. We're the school bus drivers, and we were carrying 100 percent. Right. Right through the pandemic. And did you have screens? And no screens. But there's a little. Uh, plastic screen behind you. Yeah. But wait, I tell you, Joe, you, you remember, I brought it home to my son who, who was terminally ill. Yeah, I remember, that. I remember and, that. And, and we nearly all, we didn't know whether Tom was going to live through it or not. But we were right up there on the front line. But who should, you know, the government would argue, you're getting an extra public holiday on March the 18th. Does that help? Oh yeah, I can buy you a load of oil for the house out of that. Uh, Do you think, I need, to, yeah, you know what I mean? What, yeah. I, what I mean to you, Joe, is no disrespect to anybody out there but we were you can make an, an excuse for everybody being on the front line nobody says that the nurses shouldn't course, should, of course they shouldn't get it. Yeah. but the recognition of a bank holiday I mean I won't even get paid for a bank holiday now, could yeah. you, could I didn't you, I wouldn't get paid when yeah, I was no, out for four months with the COVID I yeah, didn't no, get paid no. oh god and did you get the, four the, were, you, were, no, you, were, you, were you eligible for the pub not when you were not when you're out sick okay 
with the call. Oh, yes, okay. I, I got that afterwards, yes. Okay, got afterwards. Now, Niall, but, could, could your employer pay you a pandemic bonus? They were very, very good to me, John. Okay. I can't say enough about it. Well, I'm still waiting on one employer, one company in the country, come out to ring 0818715815 to say we think what the government is doing is magnificent. No ifs or buts, and we're going to follow it, and we're going to give our employees out of the yeah. extra money. We're, we're the only thing we heard about big companies, as I say, apart from Dunn's is the one I'm, I read about uh, there. The only yeah. big companies who made profits during the the um, the pandemic, which is ongoing, got yeah. the, and got supports from the government. They they banked they banked those supports in foreign bank accounts. And they, they, didn't, are, they, so. they didn't give it to the workers. But did that surprise you, Joe? Did that surprise you? Because it would definitely wouldn't surprise me. Okay, well, let's see. Is there any company taking the, following the government's lead? Well, all I can Connor, say, Joe, if you don't yeah. mind me saying this, the not, company yeah. I work for were very, very, okay. very good to me. And Joe asked Niall about his recovery and his son Tom's health situation. Yeah, it took me a long time, Joe. Yeah, I know that. I, I was know. four months, and then I was worried about Tom and yeah, all and that. How is, how is Tom? I know Tom is a long time. Tom, Tom is very near. Very near the final time, Joe. I have to say that to you. And why do you say that? Because, see, what he has is a term, oh, terminal illness, and he's near oh, the God. end of it. Oh, God. He, he's gone to the stage now, Joe, that he can't move his arms or his legs or even move at all. So he's he's worse than someone that's paralysed, Joe. If you don't mind me saying no disrespect to people, no, I paralyzed. know that. I know that. Isn't... He, he can't move and he can't do anything, but he can feel all the pain. And where is so he? So he's going through an awful time oh, now at the moment. God. And where is Tom now? He's at home with us, we've minded him the whole way along. We love him, and we're not going to let him go into hospital or not. His, his wishes are not to go into hospital. Uh, so we're minding him at home. Okay. We got him a 90 there a few weeks ago. He's with us still, and he came back a little bit, would you believe, in the meantime, Joe. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, age, he's remind, down here. He's muscular dystrophy, Joe. Yeah, I know that. Remind listeners of what age Tom is. He's 25, Joe. Good God. He's 25. And have you been offered hospital care or hospice care or whatever? No, well, not up to this. We've looked after myself and his mummy. Yeah. And his brothers and sisters do as much as they can. But yeah. he's, uh, his, his wishes are he never wants to go into hospital again. So we have to honour his wishes. And we are there at home with him all the time. And, and we're have, getting great care at the moment. I know that. Because you, of it's, the seriousness of his yeah. condition now at the moment. And you're with him today, obviously. And oh, I am every day. I never, oh, okay. I never leave his side. He's been a great, he's an honour to me and, and to the town. And, you know, he's represented Ireland all over the world yeah, I know in the power was, soccer. And yeah, he yeah, got Ireland caps and he won the bronze medals in, 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 in the European Championships and everything. And he's been a, a credit. But yeah. unfortunately, Joe, we knew that this was coming and, it, and it's, it's on its way. And what would it be, say, if you don't mind me asking, what would be the conversation this morning you had with Tom? You see, the big conversation, he's getting a new bed that helps him turn because okay. he's getting all bed sores in the back of his head and on his bum. He's getting a new bed. To okay, turn. great. He's a creature of habit and he, he doesn't like to, to change over, you know. But there only last week now, he, he kind of went into a kind of a bit of a, a meltdown and he mm. just looked at me and he says to me, hey, Dad, he says, I'm afraid. And I said to him, you don't have to be afraid of nothing. Mm. There, he brings up the conversation himself. You can't yeah. breach it with him. He won't speak to you about death or anything. No, no. But he knows. He's highly intelligent. He was at yeah. college for four years. 
highly, highly intelligent, but he can't move nothing. He can do nothing. He can't even play. God help him. The last bit of fun he used to have was he used to play his video games. His fingers are gone. And everything gone. He's just lying there. The fella says, waiting on God. And you've, you've, so, you've exhausted everything, have you, Niall? Everything. 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 There's no hope. But that's the way it is, John. I know, I know. When is the new bed coming? It's, it came in just before I came out today. I'm driving great. the bus. John. I know that, I know that. And you're great. You're out on the bus, as you say, during yeah. your dad, with the with the children every single day. Um, oh, they're so great. The, so the bed has arrived. We can't do anything to help you there. The bed has arrived. No, it has arrived. I tell oh, you what, Joe. Yeah. The, if you don't mind me saying this, you yeah. often hope, you know, that you go back to his computer games. Yeah. And we don't know anyone. Does anyone know anybody or anything? Okay. I could have may, maybe wear a yoke for his eyes. You know there is some way he can play that'll give him some kind of life. And what is his move? But just so, so if anyone, none, if none, Joe, none. Are you saying he, he, you want him to get one of those headsets? You know, maybe the. You know that I hate. We've heard. We don't know. We don't know, Joe. Okay. That there's a way of playing your games with these headsets. I don't know. Where where you where you don't have to. Yeah. You, well, you, you know, he, he can move his eyes. You see. Yeah. Unfortunately, every your your lungs and your your heart and every your kidneys they're all muscles. Yeah. So his and main his main yeah. muscles that are working his eyes obviously in terms of movement yeah. is breathing obviously thank God. Yeah. Uh, well, his breathing now is is very very uh, bad okay. at the moment. Joe, he wears the BiPAP nearly all day. Okay. He so, takes it off for a couple of hours. Okay. So you so you're saying if anyone if any company out there has any ideas. On yeah. how to help this young man play. Yeah, we pay video. for it, Joe. You I know, know we don't well, want to well, the, the, the live line will, yeah. will pay for it. Don't worry about that end of it. But yeah. th- is there anyone out there that has a, a computer company I'm thinking of? Is there anyone out there that has a, a computer system for people who are. Uh, uh, he is, as you say, he's war, and you, you said it in such a lovely way, caring about people who are paralysed. But you said he's, he's worse than paralysed. It's worse, Joe, okay. because he can feel all the pain. <sighs> oh, every so is there, pain. Is I mean, there anyone out there that would have any ideas on how to help him play his video games and get a bit of relief and solace from them? Joe at rte.ie is the email if you can help. That's Niall talking about his son Tom on the live line with Joe Duffy. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.